Welcome to the Triple Point Podcast, a podcast for those working at the intersection of weather and climate, technology, and society. We focus on innovators and leaders working to make our community safe and resilient in the face of a dynamic and ever-changing world. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff Cunningham. And I am Ryan Harris. And in today's episode, we finally got a chance to dive deep into the world of water security with two great colleagues leading the Global Water Security Center at the University of Alabama. Mike Vermillion and Dr. Kate Brownman had a ton of insights to share on how they are bridging water data divides across organizations and sectors at the center. The topic of cows comes up in yet another triple point, and we even got a chance to talk about beer security. More on this later in the show. We hope you enjoy it. So Jeff, I'm going to throw a curveball you right at the beginning of this, and, and I hope I don't derail the whole discussion. But I, I want I want your prediction, your prognostication uh, on whether we are going to get a hurricane in Florida next week. I know you've been looking that, at this. Yeah, yeah, I have been looking at it, and I have no clue. Um, actually, the only clue I have is that it looks like one will form and enter the Gulf, but it potentially could ride to the north and go up the peninsula. Uh, if you look at the ECMWF, it seems to keep the track to the east pretty far. The GFS and some of the other models are keeping it to the west, even out over the Yucatan. So at this point, it's really too far to tell. Fiona, you know, a different uh, system already went through Puerto Rico. Actually, that's my news article for the day. And it kind of relates to what we're talking about from a water security perspective, because the top line news in the AP right now for Puerto Rico was this issue with basically the whole island being out of water. And it may not be exactly the water security issues that we'll talk about today, but I bet it's pretty close, right? I mean, Puerto Rico is a territory of the U.S. and the entire island of about, I think, a half a million people don't have public running water right now. They have to go to something like 18 distribution points. Uh, it looks like some federal entities flew in to help with that. They're calling them oasises. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but um, anyway, a lot of people are frustrated because it's the second major hurricane in the last several years to cause devastation. And, you know, it's a, it's a big problem. And, you know, this is not, a, you know, a third world country or a country without a lot of resources, right? So this is kind of an issue. Yeah. And, you know, you, you scale from hurricanes to, you know, we've talked a lot this summer about heat and water security. You and I had a couple of shows earlier this summer on water security, talking about the major drought out west, talking about a really like a thousand year mega drought causing perilously low water levels in Lake Mead, Lake Powell, California, and other states out west are having to figure out what they're going to do with that. California, maybe we'll talk about this with our guests today, but they've established a water supply strategy. And I put a post in LinkedIn earlier this year. There's some good things in there, but are we going far enough in terms of, you know, reduction of use and conservation? And since that, those water security kind of conversations or the drought issues that we've seen out West, we've also had issues like in Jackson, Mississippi, major water crisis with their infrastructure failing. And a lot of that infrastructure failed over time, but it was caused most calamitously by flooding uh, in August. And so, you know, weather has a direct, both you saw a weather and a climate impact as well as the societal infrastructure impacts there. 
and that's what we talk about here on the Triple Point Podcast, weather and climate, technology and society. Well, and one of the research articles I looked at uh, to prep for this, and we can go into more detail here with our guests, but it was uh, weathering water extremes and cognitive biases in a changing climate. And it's, it's an article out of over some flooding and some issues that happened in Australia, where basically they had been in a drought for decades plus. There was a flooding situation and the operators of the hydrological systems, the dams and reservoirs and all of that, because of cognitive biases of, hey, this never happens, didn't necessarily do things in the right sequencing order to release water earlier than the flood. And so, you know, I think about how if we go through, you know, these periods of long drought, a lot of water, you know, it's, it's very difficult to actually make predictive, solid-based decisions on what to do with the water supply. So some of this is that play, that interaction between, you know, changing climate, typical weather, and then just human decisions and societal decisions on how we do things, you know, not yeah. to repair infrastructure or to let more water in or out, you know, based off of the, the past. Yeah, water management is a huge topic within the topic of water security here. And as we'll talk about, water security depends on, you know, the weather and climate, but it, the water management is a huge piece of that as well. Uh, and then water security is inextricably tied to food and energy security as well, which is something that the Global Water Security Center at the University of Alabama is focused on. So let's do this. Let's jump right in with our guests. So I want to introduce... Mr. Mike Gramillion, he is the director of the Global Water Security Center and currently the acting director of the Alabama Water Institute. He's provided scientific leadership and expertise for national security environmental support for 27 years at the Department of Defense and came to the University of Alabama from the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, where he was the senior meteorology and oceanography officer. Prior to joining NGA, Mike finished his time in the Air Force as the Deputy Director of Weather and has worked throughout his career to engage senior leaders across the interagency, industry, and academia on strategic weather, water, and climate matters. He earned a bachelor's degree in atmospheric science from the University of Kansas, a master's degree in meteorology from Texas A&M, and a master's in business administration from Regis University. And I'm pleased to introduce Dr. Kate Brownman. And she is the Associate Director of Communications and Analysis. Prior to joining the University of Alabama, Kate was the Water and Climate Resilience Fellow at the Department of Defense, where she also helped DOD as a AAAS Lesnar Leadership Fellow in Science Engagement. Dr. Brownman is a globally recognized thought leader in water resources and ecosystem services. Her past research and groundbreaking work as lead author for the Global Assessment of the Intergovernmental Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services has earned her numerous accolades and citations, even testifying to Congress on the work in 2019. She earned her undergraduate degree from Columbia University and PhD from Stanford University. Welcome to you both. It's great to be here. Great to be here also. So one of the first questions we like to ask each of our guests is, how did you get to this point? So Mike, let's start with you. Kind of summarize your journey and how you got to where you are and, and how you landed there at the Alabama Water Institute Global Water Security Center. Well, Ryan, as you know, part of the journey was because of you. Um, and so it's all your fault. So, um, <laughs> no. So as Ryan alluded to, 
I have a 27 year career and retired out of the military. And a lot of how I am where I'm at right now, I, I call it the beatings and regrets that I wish I would have done when I was on active duty in the military. I had various different uh, opportunities throughout the military to be the kind of the federal face for at least the DOD or the Air Force in whether it was space weather to climate to just regular weather. And so a lot of those opportunities that I had uh, being in Washington, D.C. allowed me to kind of shape um, where I'm at right now. A lot of the contacts, a lot of the the interactions that I was afforded to during my military career. And, and Ryan, as you know, during one of my past, well, the last several years of my military, our work together on trying to get the military to understand climate change was vital in shaping uh, where I'm at now. And it just had come fortuitous that, you know, I just ended up here, got recruited by Senator Shelby staff and the University of Alabama to come up and start this center and was able to recruit a fantastic uh, researcher in Kate and beginning to start this journey because our nation really does not fully understand water as well as it should. And so this is a grand opportunity for her and I to lead and be thought leaders in this and hopefully a change agent for better in the future. All right. Well, I have a pretty non-traditional academic story. I didn't get into environmental work until after college. I ended up working for an environmental nonprofit. And it was while I was there that I got really interested in issues about water and about energy. And both of those as environmental issues that we just can't ignore. Um, they're at our doorstep and they're something that we have to take on. And then I had a real, you know, moment of introspection and realized that I like rivers a lot more than I like power plants. And so I became a hydrologist, um, <laughs> got my PhD, but I've always been really interested in what it is we do on the landscape, how that affects the flow of water and how that in turn affects what we can do with the water. So I like thinking about programs where we're doing land management to evaluate water outcomes, but also thinking about hydrologic models and really large scale hydrologic models and how we interpret the outputs of those. Um, so thinking globally about water productivity and water security, indicators of water shortage, what all of those mean, especially when we try to think about management. And I've done a lot of work on kind of the science to policy translation side that's how I ended up at the Department of Defense. Um, so AAAS is this organization, the American Association for the Advancement of Sciences, that provides for PhD science, uh, scientists what I would call um, the world's fanciest internship program, uh, where they'll place PhD scientists into federal service for a year or two, both to bring that science to the government, but then also to really let scientists understand what it is that the government is grappling with. And I ended up taking a position at DOD to help them with some congressionally mandated requirements to evaluate water security for military installations. And it was fascinating. I had a great time. And that's also where I met Mike. And so instead of returning to the University of Minnesota, which I had been planning to do, he lured me to Alabama. I have moved south. And um, I'm really excited to be at the Global Water Security Center and actually attempting to like take all this cool science that's out there and make it not just useful, but actually used. Actionable. That's what we like to hear. Yes. 
Yeah, that I mean, pretty much that's the theme of the podcast. You know, both Ryan and I spent 20 years doing the weather stuff in the Air Force, along with Mike Kermillion. And, you know, the Air Force and DOD is somewhat prone to action compared to other federal agencies. So having, you know, to make a decision off of the weather or climate was was pretty crucial. And, you know, there's just so many different aspects, it seems like, across society that we could do a better job. I mean, Ryan uh, shot me a video from the, uh, was it the Financial Times? Financial Times. Uh, yeah, the Financial Times talking about water security and, and starting to maybe talk about having like uh, water futures and all of these other things. I don't know if that's something you guys can talk about, you know, paying for water, basically speculating on it and stuff like that. Some of it's good, some of it's bad. And so there was kind of an interesting thing there, but it starts bringing water to the forefront of people's mind at, at the bare minimum. So to kind of open up, if I'm not too early, what is water security? Like, what's the definition of water security? I looked it up. I read Wikipedia. Admittedly, I, I know the basic definition from from my time in the Air Force, but I don't really know what you guys know. What what's the, what is it? There's a couple different definitions. So the the broadest definition, the one that the United Nations uses, and the one that I think most people mean when they talk about water security, is having sufficient water of sufficient quality to have the health, energy, safety, security, and, and productivity outcomes that individuals need in their lives. And so it's really um, an individual human-focused definition. A lot of people then also add um, water for nature to part of that because people need nature also. We have a, a slightly narrower definition just in terms of operationalizing that here at the Global Water Security Center, where we're really focused on how water or the lack of water, what, what are the pathways towards instability or conflict? And how can we think about um, anticipating those so that it's easier to respond to them? That's super helpful. Uh, and it really frames, it frames the discussion. So, you know, one of the articles I was reading in preparing for this and maybe I'm diving headfirst right in right away, uh, going off of Jeff's question. But this concept of water wars, Mike and I and Jeff and others had looked at, you know, this from a climate security perspective. You have transboundary issues, whether that's the Mekong Delta, you know, China siphoning off water. You've got Turkey siphoning off water and you know, Tigris and Euphrates that you know, contributed to some of the biggest issues in the Syrian drought. But now there's some recent research about water wars coming to Asia with the Tibetan plateau water drying up with this reservoir that, you know, that feeds water to 100 or excuse me, 1.35 billion people from the watersheds out of the Tibetan plateau. That's 20 percent of the world's population. And so there's also a UN report out there uh, as part of this article that we'll put in the show notes, but half of all the countries by 2025, which is just three years, are going to have water scarcity and three quarters of the world's population in 2050 expected to see uh, some water scarcity issues. So what's this concept of water wars and what's the Global Water Security Center doing to, to look at those kind of uh, challenges, Mike? I think when Kate and I are sat down and designing what our center will look like, I mean, one of the things that we discovered is, is it's really not 
that much data that's produced and, and consumable to kind of understand as efficiently as what we probably need to. Uh, I think what there's a dirge of lack of information on un really understanding that and then being able to connect that to societal impacts. And so one of the driving forces for us is to create these data sets and begin to look at this analysis um, on, on how to, you know, let's really look at the data behind the stories and see if, if they shall meet. And so one of the things that we're doing to, to be able to answer questions like you asked is, is create that data, make it accessible for researchers, uh, whether it's here at the University of Alabama or all throughout the world, so that we can better tell that story. Could it happen? Possibly. Um, you know, India, I just learned the other day, only 10% of their water or, or their electricity is produced by hydro. While it may be disruptive, it's not going to be the end of the world, literally, for India if all of a sudden all the Himalayas melt out. But 10% shock, as we saw in Texas a couple of years ago when their windmills froze, <laughs> you know, did cause some disruption to society. So I would be, at least personally, uh, I'd be a little hesitant to kind of go out on that plank as, as much as it, because I'd rather have the data and then be able to say that. And so that's kind of what we're working on. Well, if, uh, if we may, what are some of the ways that you guys are digging into that? Like what, how, what is your approach for getting after some of those answers? We're doing a bunch of different things. And one of the first is just trying to make water and climate and weather data more easily accessible. So if you have ever decided that you were curious about what the rainfall history of Syria was, those data are absolutely freely available. But you need to be able to figure out where they are, download a giant multidimensional data set open that data set and then find the piece of information you want. And so the data are available, but they're not very accessible. And that makes it really hard to take a look at what a lot of this kind of water and, and environmental background information is, unless you're actually in deep as an expert in these, in these issues. And what's really clear is that Water and weather and climate are important drivers, but they're not the be-all and end-all. Everything is always going to run through human systems, human technologies, human institutions. And so we need to be able to bring that information together. And if it's too technical, then the folks who really understand what are the institutional and governance issues that are happening, they can't, they can't get the biophysical data. And so we're building data portals to make this available, and we're doing a lot of interpretation ourselves so that we can push that out and help people understand what these pathways to impact are. That's really interesting you said that because it goes back to our intersection of climate and health episode. And that's exactly what he said for the health side of things is like, hey, we've got all of this weather data. It's available, but it's not really accessible in a form that the health experts can use. They don't understand net CDF files. They don't understand all of these very specific environmental type types of data sets and formats. 
Yeah, I think that's a very interesting common theme. And one of the things that Ryan and I try to do with this podcast is identify these gaps. What are these interesting gaps that, you know, people can solve and how can we help that conversation and move it along? So, Jeff, I mean, one of the frustrating I've had um, with even with the health community throughout my career was, you know, there's they write lots of articles on the influences of, of water and, and, and climate and stuff. But there is a large chasm between the two communities, the MET community, the climate community, and the health community. And they really don't want to work with one another. I mean, yeah, they can say that, that, you know, accessible of data. But when you offer them the potential of having that data, you know, they don't want to, they don't want to join forces. And so we're at this time in history that we just got to get over ourselves. <laughs> And we've got to work as a community to to work. I mean, we hear this food, water, energy, health nexus, but the community really doesn't want to work together as good as what we could. And so for us, we're hoping that GWSC is, serves as that bridge, the bridge from the science community um, that has data or has science that sits on a shelf. How do we operationalize it? And then... The other side of the bridge is to get over that valley of death is then how do we, how do we do something that is useful as Kate alluded to, to the decision makers that are easily understandable. And so that's, that's one of our big goals is how do we do that? How do we go about being that, that gap filler? And, and the good thing about somebody like Kate, which attracted me to lure her to Alabama was. She, she can do that. She, she is a, a fantastic scientist and very well known, but she can also make it very simple, you know, and to keep it simple, stupid, you know, so that people like me can understand it. And so, and, and that's what we are going to strive to be able to do. So let me ask this question from a slightly different angle. So a lot of us have come out of government, right? Ryan and I are trying to discover also commercial aspects of weather and climate. As we go through this, there's a whole human societal set of systems that are making decisions and weather and climate's like one input. I mean, we see this throughout our career of like weather's an after the fact thought, or it's like, wait to the last minute, or it's, it's, you know, it's, it's an emergency and now we have to do something, you know, but like, there's a lot of planning that can happen with the, with the data that we have. And so can you address some of the money things? And what I mean by that is, is kind of like the economic value or the business value of this type of data. Like th there's the government obvious, like sort of protects people, infrastructure, et cetera. But like, what's the, how do you tie that to the commercial piece of things? That's a tough one. People have had a really hard time monetizing this kind of data, both because it's extremely expensive to produce in the first place. Um, so the, what's the, what's the base where a lot of this information is coming from? It's satellites in the sky and it's, you know, rain gauges on the ground and somebody's got to pay to build those things, to deploy those things, to collect and collate those data. And that's almost always public investment. So we see that first level of public investment. And usually that means that the data are then required to be freely available. That doesn't, as I was saying, necessarily mean that data are super accessible to everyone, but they are freely available. And so we've 
repeatedly seen that it's hard to monetize this. There's some interesting new things coming online. I know you've talked a little bit about Planet Labs and some of the microsatellites. There's work that's happening where people are doing quite specific interpretations of data for specific uses. The folks who have tried to really, really scale that I've been aware of um, to sort of do this science as a service, most of that has fallen really flat. It's it's hard to monetize in that kind of supercharged exponential growth way. But I think something that looks much more like what we're doing, which is really bespoke interpretation for a specific need, has a ton of potential because whether it's you know, in government, but I work with a lot of NGOs who are thinking about natural infrastructure and land management. I was at World Water Week at the end of September. There's a ton of interest in how do we finance water stuff. Everybody's got big questions that they need answers to. And I think there's interesting potential for monetization in terms of that interpretation piece. Well, and to pair that answer with you know, something that Mike was just kind of talking about. It's something that Jeff and I talk about a lot on this show is the really the nexus of all these things. You've got the science, you've got the socioeconomic information, the data, whether it's from health communities, water managers, so on and so forth. I imagine that one of the reasons, and maybe you can talk about the reason why the Global Water Security Center was stood up, and it's only, it's pretty new in the last couple of years, but it, I imagine one of the reasons it was stood up was to really help connect the dots, connect the dots between the data out there, making it, making it more accessible to communities, but also connect the dots between academia, um, you know, academic research, industry, the public sector, the private sector, so that there's a more holistic way to get out ahead of some of these water concerns. Can you talk to some of that, you know, the work that the center has been doing on the socioeconomic connections and then also validate if that's one of the reasons why the Global Water Security Center was was stood up there at the University of Alabama. So I'll take the why and then I'll let Kate do the socio thing. So, yeah, I mean, when I was in the military with y'all, you know, one of the frustrations I had was bureaucracy did not allow us to be very free and and being uh, strategic thinkers. I, you know, that kind of sounds funny considering that most of society would think that DOD was probably the most advanced of being strategic thinkers. But when you try to, you know, when I pinned on Colonel, I just thought that I would just be this kingmaker and I could do all these wonderful things. And then reality hit that I'm just another cog, even though I'm a higher rank of anybody else. I just, I, I really could never really advance anything. So when I got here and was offered this opportunity to stand the center up, it, it did allow us to explore things that I normally would not be able to explore and put to reality, uh, unleash the burdens or unleash the bureaucracy and allow it. Even though I'm, we're going to get uh, funding from the Department of Defense and other people, we're, you know, we'll be able to explore things that I wasn't able to do when I was in the, in the military. When I've been talking to all the different science agencies, they're just as frustrated, whether it's NASA, Corps of Engineers, or everything else. We spend billions of dollars on research, but it never really gets across that transom. And so even those agencies are looking at us as 
oh, there's this place where we can take this great science and move it over across and let's operationalize it. And in fact, a program manager at NASA made the comment that, Mike, it would be really, really nice if GWSE could be the hub or the centralization of water science. You know, can you be the Pied Pipers of water, if you will, um, to be able to to take the, what we've been slaving at at our desk and, and the research that we've been doing and kind of being our, our, the face of the, of the water community to deliver that, that data and, and that bespoke analysis that Kate mentioned to, because it's just not out there. And because it's not out there, it's, it's a driving force for us to, to try to get her done, if you will. Yeah. And, you know, Picking up on that idea of, of translation, I think there's kind of two threads that we're thinking about. So one of them is folks doing research and what happens to it. So I, I am totally guilty of this. I have never met a scientist who didn't start out their papers in the introduction talking about how decision relevant my amazing environmental science is. Um, and I'm not throwing stones beyond my glass house because, like I said, totally guilty of this. But the problem is that even if I did an analysis or created a data set that is potentially really useful, what happens to that? Best case scenario, I put it on my website for free download that you might or might not find, but I'm probably not going to update it every year. No, who's going to pay for that? I'm probably not going to, you know, if I did this for one country or one region, the reward for me as an academic is being able to show proof of concept, but there's not a reward. There's both literally no money to pay for and also not a lot of academic reward for expanding that over space. Can we make this a global product over time? Can we keep it updated? Can we go backwards in time so we can understand the past? And so there's, there's a real disconnect between, well, I as a policymaker, I need something that's like relevant today, your circa 2000 data isn't actually doing me a lot of good. I need to know about 2022. So that's one of the kind of translation pieces that we have big ambitions to connect with the science community, to find the best science. People are already doing the science. We don't need to do new science a lot of times, but really, you know, expand that, make the data themselves more useful, and then also the data portals and the translation. The other piece of the translation I think that's really important is exactly what you were saying, Ryan, about this um, really integrating biophysical data with socioeconomic data. So 50 years ago, 100 years ago, people were really into this idea of environmental determinism. This guy Malthus was the one who was like, population's going to grow. We're going to eat all the food and everyone's going to die. Um, and you'll be shocked to notice that we're all still here today and are, in fact, not dead or hungry. And it's quite clear that environmental determinism doesn't work, that people are unbelievably good at adapting um, both through behavior and through building things to figuring out how to how to thrive and survive in the world that we actually do live in. And so it's it's great to say like, oh, we're going to run out of water. There's going to be water wars. But actually, when you look at the data and you look at what happens, conflicts about water are 
generally mediated through governance processes. Those are, in general, pretty strong at the inter-country level. And so you basically have never seen water wars between countries because war is really expensive. It's much cheaper to cooperate. And we've seen water as a driver of cooperation at the international level far more frequently than we've ever seen anything looking like conflict, which isn't to say we shouldn't manage it. The reason that we haven't had conflict is because people are managing it. But the water itself is only one piece of these larger governance, management, institutional setups. And so if we don't really think about how do we take this biophysical information and use its usefulness, but in the context of the socioeconomic stuff, then it's not useful either. And so we're really excited about, you know, that kind of translation and interfacing with the really great work that the intelligence community is already doing, but bringing this extra piece of environmental information to it. So could one of you paint us a picture of who your stakeholders are and who your customers are? So as I alluded to earlier, the intelligence community. But as both of you know, that if you produce it with DOD being the big grill on the block, you got to bring diplomacy and other things along with. And so by natural outgrowth, we're going to produce products that, that be relevant for just more than just the national security apparatus. So if you look at the national security agencies, you could say that State Department and USAID and some of these other ones have an important role to play in that. So that's governmental aspect. There are obviously from a stakeholders, uh, there could be multinational corporations. About a year ago, a chief sustainability officer came through and he was frustrated that he was not getting any sufficient water information and wanted this kind of information. And so our first tier would be the national security agencies. The second tier, if we do our jobs right, could be multinational corporations. Kate already alluded to that uh, in conversations when she was at World Water Week, you know, there were NGOs that said, you're going to have data, <laughs> uh, you know, and so it could be a multitude of different particular stakeholders. From a science partnership, working really hard, both on the federal government side to get some of their stuff across that transom, as I alluded to. But as Kate said, you know, there's some great work out there in the academic world that, again, that nobody reads or, or I don't know where her website was. And so how do we do horizon scanning for some great science that are out there? And then how do we engage with them, partner with them, and then bring it into our fold? And so we have Kate and all of her prowess and, and expertise has given us a, quite a few opportunities for the academic world to explore some of these things. And then the, the last gap is then we kind of assess and where are their gaps and then fund deficiencies. You know, is there new ways to look at uh, non-traditional data sets? Is there, and who's doing that kind of work? Can, can we use data that we normally wouldn't use in the weather and climate world to help us serve as proxies or other things. And so there's, there's, I'm sure there's a great horizon of things that 
we don't know yet um, that we, you know, will continue to explore. And then how do we bundle it all together so we can support these stakeholders? Yeah, so I'm going to ask a probably a complex question with <laughs> you could probably take this down multiple rabbit holes. So wh whatever rabbit holes you want to take this down, feel free to let, let's dive in a little bit. But water has been a really big topic, not just on our podcast, but in the news uh, over the last several months, you know, whether it's the White House released its action plan on global water security earlier this year in June. So obviously, you know, our government uh, at the top of our executive branch sees this as a major challenge. You've got, like I said earlier, the state of California establishing its water supply action plan, which in my mind, when I look at that is, is nice and all, it's trying to look at different ways to go out and create more use for water. I would rather see more reduction in conservation as a more prominent measure in those kind of things. But then you've also got the University of Alabama's awarded earlier this year, 360 some million dollar contract with NOAA to establish Cooperative Institute hydrology and water and other things. And so really the question I am kind of brooding on here for a second is what is that Cooperative Institute? What is the Global Water Security Center? What sort of tools, technology and research do you intend to come out of these centers to answer some of the gauntlets been thrown down by the White House and state of California and others. So I'll let Kate address the GWSC and then I'll talk about the Cooperative Institute. Well, we have big goals for GWSC. We're really ambitious because if we don't try, then we're never going to get anywhere, right? And for us on the GWSC side, it's two parts. I think a lot of it's international. So the U.S. for, you know, all the times that I think a lot of us has, have struggled getting good U.S. water data, the U.S. has a lot of awesome data. And so in some ways, that's about, you know, data management and better interpretation, better models. When we think about a lot of the rest of the world, especially, um, you know, Africa, parts of Asia, where either there's not a lot of monitoring or we're not able to access um, country level monitoring, that's when we get global information where we're looking at big global data sets that are remotely sensed, that are interpolated, that are modeled. And we're really excited to begin gathering as many different ways of interpreting different kinds of global scale water information as we can. And then again, really trying to solve this puzzle of how do we get across the valley of death from I have really cool data to you actually know something. This is useful information. How do we make that translation? And are there ways that we can scale that, make it bigger, learn how to do this so that it's not just the government or just customers, but that it's something that everybody can get at? So we're not there yet. You're looking at half of the GWSC team right now, but we have big ambitions. We're going to grow. We're going to do amazing work. I am very excited about our potential. So the Cooperative Institute uh, is a little bit of a different than the, what NOAA has normally done. The one major difference in this one is, is we're actually aligned into the National Weather Service as opposed to the, the research side. 
so that is a break of tradition for all the other cooperative institutes that NOAA has here. And the reason that we did that is because, again, the science part of NOAA, I mean, if I asked you to, what is the most important thing that came out of NOAA in the last 20 years, your answers would be what? You're not supposed to put us on this. Oh, that's great. (laughs) So what is it? Out of NOAA Uh, or the National Weather Service? Sure. Either one. Well, it probably predates the, the, if you said 20 years, 20 or 30, I would say, I would, next round's pretty good. Okay. But that's, but that's pushing it on the, like, you're a little biased biased. on next round. I I am biased on next round. I would say, you know, very simply, and it's just off the top of my brain is they shrunk the warning like for severe storms, for instance, it is getting at the decision support of the community closer to the community impacted rather than some blanket uh, warning. That's, that's something that I would say. Yeah. And I don't know if you, if NOAA National Weather Service could claim it, but I would say the hurricane track, you know, tropical cyclone track forecasts have improved, but that's probably, a these are clearly not research. answers he's this, looking for. So my, yeah, my set us up, I, he set us up. Well, of course I, I no, let, I'm going to take over your podcast and ask you guys questions. No, that's fine. No, yeah, that's I, right. And you could make the argument that Nexrad probably from a scientific transfer of information was probably a, one of maybe two or three things that, that have come out of the labs that are actually useful. The, the warning thing, Ryan, that's a, process thing, not necessarily a science thing. So, so the reason I say that and put you guys on the spot is, is because again, they spend millions and millions of dollars on NOAA research. And then where does it cross that trend into NextRad is a prime example. And one of probably only a few that you could actually point to that uh, made it across that was worth it. You know, and, and so if they have any NOAA people on here that are listening to this, I'm going to get really mad at me, but they'll, that, that's okay. If they look in the mirror, they'll realize what I said is right. Well, it, so we, we need a little controversy. Right. So it's okay. Okay. <laughs> like poking at NOAA. So there's your controversy. Um, so what we did is we put this cooperative institute in the National Weather Service and they, it's the, the name of the institute is the Cooperative Institute for Research to Operations and Hydrology. So we put that R2O, that research to operations theme, within the name of the Cooperative Institute to prove to NOAA that we can actually move science out of the academic world and actually make it useful uh, to the National Weather Service and NOAA. So that is a radical departure from all the other stuff. So the hope is that right now, the way we look at water from a NOAA perspective is just really an flood inundation mapping, period, stop. And in my perfect world, you know, they should go from the NIDAS should be aligned underneath the National Water Center because it's the lack of water, right? All the way through harmful algal bloom forecasting to too much, too little, you know, quality and quantity water. And so Cooperative Institute, as it begins to mature. Again, we put these partnerships together of 28 universities and industry because we want industry's perspective in it. We put this team together and it's a political and technical footprint throughout the United States and Canada, the University of Saskatchewan and Calgary. 
is a partner in our in this institute so that we can truly begin to understand from Canada all the way down to Mexico how water interacts with society. And one of the research themes, other than the modeling and the, and, and the hydroinformatics, is also that decision support or societal benefits. But how can we make sure that our nation understands the systems thinking of water and, and so we're driving here at the University of Alabama as the lead for that on how can we do a much better job of having the understanding of the water so we can make economic decisions, health decisions, and many other things. One of the things we talked about on, I think, the last podcast or two is the human disconnection from where we get our food, our energy. And then so one of the questions we, we had for you both is, you know, where does our water come from? And in I got to imagine part of this is connecting society with understanding where their water comes from as well. As Jeff alluded to, there's a Financial Times video out there. It's only two or three minutes. We'll put it in the show notes, but it really is. It starts to get at the heart of understanding where does the water come from, but also should water be commoditized? Should it not be commoditized? Israel, for instance, has a lot of high technology and desalination plants and leading in some ways from a water security perspective in some of those new technologies. But they also commoditize water so that they have a direct connection with the cost of water. It's water's not free. You've got infrastructure, you've got all the water management. So where does our water come from? So where your water comes from depends a lot of where you live. <laughs> but what I will say, I'm going to dive right into that pricing question because I am extremely skeptical about attempts to commoditize water, at least too much. So one of the things about prices is that if you put a price on something, then you're saying you're welcome to purchase it. And we've actually seen there have been really interesting behavioral economics experiments where people have done pricing structures in order to say, oh, it's more expensive, you'll use less, and instead people use more. So there was a daycare study where every extra five minutes you were late, you got charged for it. Well, if I'm paying for it, then I can just be late, right? I'm buying that from you. And they ended up having uh, much later pickups than they had had prior to putting this pricing scheme in place. You're seeing things that are fundamentally similar in California. Um, they are actually trying to put caps on water use. But prior to that, they were really looking at a tiered pricing scheme where the more water you use, the more expensive it becomes. Well, if I can afford it, why can't I have an oasis in my backyard? And you when you're invite... seeing this, yeah, and sorry to interrupt, but you're seeing this like at in California you know, all these desert golf courses that, that use millions of gallons a day to keep those golf. So one of the things I've talked about previously is a values thing. Um, and this comes down to our human value system and, and what are we going to value? And that's why I kind of key on like, hey, let's stop trying to find new ways to create more water sources. We need to figure out how to better utilize the water resources the earth already gives us. And yes, let's be in innovative and let's use ingenuity. 
but uh, sorry, I, that was a that was a trigger for me as well. So I I, I think we're on the same page here, Kate. On the I interrupted your strong, train of thought though. Strong agree, and and I'll just say I think you know we talk about we often talk about price and value as being interchangeable, but they are absolutely not the same thing. Price is about the marginal value of a commodity, and value is about what it is that we care about, <laughs> and sometimes you can use price as an indicator of value, but that's not always true. There's willingness to pay, but there's also ability to pay. And I agree with you, Ryan. I think we need to have much more serious, harder conversations about what it is value and how we want to negotiate the use of a limited resource. That said, I also think we need to start thinking about ways to get the things we want without water. I mean, we, we keep talking about increasing efficiency, but the fact of the matter is that other than, you know, the glass of water that you're drinking, usually it's not actually the water you care about. You don't care about having water in your toilet. You just care about getting rid of your waste in a non-smelly way. Well, maybe we can find a better way to do that instead of running drinking water through our houses. So Ryan and, and Jeff, again, I'm going to put you guys back on the spot. I, I know both of you like beer. So how much, how many gallons of water does it take to make beer? I defer to Ryan. Be <laughs> more of an expert. <laughs> you think I'm a drunk here? What the heck? I I, I can't even imagine. Um, I'm gonna say to make one pint. Uh, sure. Uh, I'm just gonna say 100 gallons of water. Oh. Jeff. Uh, let's see. I'm going to use uh, metric. So one liter. <laughs> no, you can't I, use your computational fluid dynamics on this, Jeff. I'm sorry. No. Well, I don't know if that would help in this case. But so I don't know. It's probably like a 10 to 1 ratio. So 19 and a half gallons. So to Kate's point, I mean, and you, to your knowledge, you know, some of the research that we're doing here is is updating the water footprint capability for us to understand what kind of commodities take how much water. And so you're going to stop drinking beer because I now told you it was 19 and a half gallons. I'm going to think about it. <laughs> and when I have my IPA later tonight. <laughs> Kate, is that part of your, your research? I think I saw that you did uh, crop drop or crop to drop or drop to crop or something like that. <laughs> crop per drop. I mean, crop it's really drop, about how, <laughs> how much food bang are you getting for your water buck? And yeah. You know, this is where it's easy for Mike to say, oh, it's 20 gallons of water for for beer, but it's actually a lot more complicated than that because, well, was that irrigation water or was that rainfall? That makes difference, right? And did did you use that water in a place where water is scarce or in a place where there's a lot of water available? The thing about water that's really complicated is it's not it's not inherently bad to use water. I mean, what are we using water for? We're like drinking and we're growing plants. These things are are they're good. These are these are part of how human society thrives. Um, it's when we try to do things that require more water than we have available that we end up having a problem. So I think you know it's not about saying no. It's about thinking more strategically and you know at the end of the day that's that's what we want to do but gwsc i was going to bring it down to uh, my level for a minute so i like to grow things around the house I, i'm a hobby gardener landscaper so 
And, you know, it's very important to pick plants that work in my region, right? Like if I'm trying to grow things that don't get the amount of water that naturally occurs here, you know, it's kind of, kind of unwise, I think. Um, so, I mean, that's, that, that's, I, I mean, I'm sure there's more sophisticated ways to look at it, but that seems to be a pretty straightforward analogy. I think that's a great way to look at it. And I'm going to take you one further on that. So, you know, we've all got our houseplants and when you don't water them, they wilt. And when you water them, they perk right back up. But if you're anything like me, then I, on a fairly regular basis, water a little bit too enthusiastically and it like runs over and out the bottom and gets on the floor and then you're running around looking for the towels. To all intents and purposes, that happens in the real world too. So some of the water stays in the soil, it moves through the plant as transpiration it evaporates, but actually a lot of the water that we use either in agriculture and definitely in our houses moves through the system and is available to use again. So I mentioned I moved down here from Minnesota, Minneapolis, on the Mississippi River. And, you know, where do you think all the water that left my house went? That that was going to St. Louis and eventually to NOLA. We're using water over and over again, and that's great. And we have to think about that, too, when we say, how much water are you using? Like, where's that water going? And it's really fascinating when you think about how much water we have available to us in the world. I mean, 70% of the world is water, but really only half a percent is, you know, that fresh water that are good drinking sources and that sort of thing. And one of the things that we've been talking about in a past show is supply chain. And this there's, there's this whole supply chain when it comes to water, you know, in the beer or whatever technology that you're using. So we talked about semiconductors in the supply chain episode and how water intensive it is to produce semiconductors in Taiwan. And when they have a drought, that impacts your semiconductors, which has cascading effects on the technology that gets delivered, whether it's your cell phone, your hand or laptop and that sort of thing. Just got a thread he wants to pull. Yeah, this is this is great. So this is one of my questions I wrote down earlier. Like, so we talk about water security. We talk about food security, beer security, and, you know, I've, <laughs> no, but I mean, it, it's this it's this like supply chain thing, right? It's like the, you know, what comes first sort of sort of thing. Have you guys mapped that out or has somebody mapped all of that out? Like to kind of figure out where these you know, where these connections are and like what area is not being served. I mean, I think, you know, Ryan brought up something at some point uh, in a past episode talking about, you know, if, if we could pinpoint all of the real friction points along a, a supply chain, you know, maybe there's some places to help. Jeff, it's like you're setting me up. So, yeah, we know a lot about this, sort of. Not as much as we want to. I have mostly focused on food and food commodities, so I don't know a lot about semiconductors, though I can tell you that that is not consumptive water use. All of that water is coming out the other end of the factory and they could be recycling it. They would just have to clean it first. But with food, it's really interesting. So we track international shipments of food. Um, the UN does that. There's public websites where you can see it, but we generally don't actually keep a lot of track of how food moves around within countries and within a big country like the United States that has really variable climate and growing conditions 
that matters a ton. And so there's one group of scientists out there that are doing really cool work looking at, you know, crop per drop, water scarcity, carbon impacts, and like how variable that is across the United States. But when we put that into supply chain models, it all gets mixed together. And a lot of that's because these are commodity crops and like commodities were invented so that we didn't have to keep track of the individual things that we could mush them all together and not worry about where they came from. But it means that there's really big variation that we're not keeping track of. So I worked with some colleagues at the University of Minnesota. They made this super cool model where they were looking at where is uh, corn and soy being grown? Where is it being purchased and used? Where are the cows and pigs and chickens and ethanol being grown? And then where are they being slaughtered? And so we used this model, we ran all the crazy water stuff through it, and it turns out that depending on where you bought your hamburger, it might have no irrigation water embedded in it, or it might be like off the charts, tons of irrigation water. So the, the impact of your hamburger could be more or less than your chicken or your pig, depending on where the corn was grown, where the cows were grown, and therefore where it was slaughtered and processed. I have an idea for you. So instead of, so it sounds like commodity, you know, we commoditize everything. So everything's fungible, like a dollar, right? Like a dollar and you don't know which dollar it is, but maybe we need to go backwards. We need to make it non-fungible and start tracking at these small unit levels. And, and, and would that help? Or am I just making this too complicated? I think people don't really know the answer to that. And the, I think the answer is partly like it would help some things, but then you introduce a lot of friction to the system. So you're potentially paying a lot more to move things around and get the commodities you want. And so that's going to increase prices. And, you know, nobody likes that. E economists so, are screaming at me right now. I don't know exactly. if they listen to so the I podcast. Think, I but... think the answer is we don't really know what the right way to solve this problem is. We could make everything better. That would help. So I, we could have a whole nother hour, I think, uh, on this topic. And, and maybe at some point we can bring back Mike and Kate uh, to talk water security again. Because, I mean, it's a really complex topic. Um, and there's just so many different rabbit holes. And, and as the Global Water Security Center continues to do the great work research it's doing, connecting the dots, connecting the dots between communities, bridging those gaps between the silos that are out there, whether it's the science and industry and research and government, public sector communities. Really looking forward to seeing what the Global Water Security Center is able to do to tackle some of the water security concerns that are out there and at the very least connect the dots. But before we close, uh, like we do with all of our guests, we're going to do a lightning round questions. Uh, the first question is, and we'll start with Kate, what is your most memorable weather event in your life? California, midsummer, when it does not rain, there's a thunderstorm. And this is long enough ago that we were backpacking with backpacks with the big metal frames and ended up with a pile of, of metal frame backpacks out in the trail. And the rest of us hiding under the manzanita trying to keep low enough you could smell the lightning it was so close 
That sounds a little dangerous. Uh, Mike, what do you got? Uh, so my event is more of a a support request. It was a it was an event during I was deployed, and um, we sent two F-15s by itself without any support packages, and uh, that was one of the times that I physically got something thrown at me because of my weather forecast call. And I had to move the whole time over target to the left by two hours. And they were at the time when we did have smart bombs, it was laser guided bombs and there was a cloud deck that was about ready to move on. So long story short, they dropped it. And as they were pulling out of the, uh, over the target, they flew through the cloud. So if I would have been about five minutes later, I would have, I, I would have probably gotten more than just a stapler thrown at me. So that, that's my, that was <laughs> My weather st- remembering story. <laughs> it's awesome. Uh, Beach or mountains, Kate? Yes. I really like the streams that connect them. Okay. That <laughs> That's a good awesome. answer. That's a great answer because all everyone so far has said, has said mountains. All right, Mike, what do you got? Beach or mountains? Uh, beach, but it, it doesn't like me, though. I burn in within like five seconds of being on the beach, but I enjoy it. That's cool. All right. What is your superpower? I can solve other people's problems like you wouldn't believe. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. Um, You know, it took a while for me to realize that, but I think I'll call it dot connector. Um, It's I I didn't realize I had that until I got older and more wiser. Um, So dot connector. That's cool. I'm, I'm picturing you doing the, you know, draw by number, <laughs> not draw by number, but connect the dots that my three-year-old does. You know, you got that little game, you know, where you, everybody draws a line and it, you take turns back and forth. And then you, and when you close in a box, you have to put your initials in. Did you guys ever play that? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I, I was waiting for you to answer Kate's with, I cause problems so that she can solve them. <laughs> well, that too. I've been known to be called to the principal's office several times since I've got so. <laughs> well, this has been a really great conversation. And like I said earlier, I think we could have a whole nother hour on it. This has been great. It's really uh, been a good conversation. I do have like a million other questions though. So perhaps in the future we can have a part two. Well, thank you very much. And we really look forward to continuing this conversation for sure. Yes. Thanks so much. This is great. Well, that was a cool discussion. Yeah, that was a cool discussion. I mean, I really enjoyed chatting with those two. I think they brought out a really lot of interesting points about water security, all the connections in the supply chain we'll put in quotes. I I liked how they uh, explained the different stakeholders for their center that they operate. It looks like DOD ICs where they're kind of starting out. They're integrating with the science community. They're looking to integrate with multinational corporations and NGOs. What did you pick up from the conversation? Well, I picked up two really big things, Jeff. I picked up beer security and hamburger security, which are really important. <laughs> no, yeah, beer. the beer security is obviously the number one thing. But so I, I think the other thing <laughs> that, that came out was this idea about the data is available but not accessible. And that's the exact theme that Dr. Jesse Bell brought up in the intersection of health and weather and climate is that we have a lot of environmental data, but it's not necessarily accessible to the health, you know, the health community. Similarly, 
these other communities that deal with water security don't necessarily, the data is not, not available to those policymakers and to those making decisions about the, about the weather. It's available, but not accessible. Well, and the public sector is trying to get after this to some extent, for sure. I mean, so this is what the Department of Commerce is really trying to get after, as well as NOAA, is to make their data more fair, and that FAIR stands for findable, accessible, interoperable, and reusable. And we've seen this through our careers in the military, and there's a lot of data out there, but making it useful for actual action and decisions by stakeholders, whether that's an industry or whether that's the you know person getting their drinking water out of the fountain. So there's a lot of gaps that the Global Water Security Center is looking to bridge, whether that's through their cooperative institute that they're working on with the Alabama Water Institute and NOAA. Um, and there's a, just a lot of work to, to be done in this area. Um, and they've got a you know precedent being set by United Nations, the White House, and states and communities are looking at how they better steward water and, and you know, make water available for the basic needs of society. Yeah, just pulling the accessible thread a little bit. I think one of the key attributes of that at a very technical level is that the data are in formats that the stakeholder needs them in. And so a lot of stakeholders are not used to net CDF. They're not used to these very specific environmental data formats. So getting those data in not just formats, but in systems and, you know, big data systems, uh, data warehouses and such, such that people that are doing this analysis can actually, uh, do the data. And so I, you know, I, I would, uh, reference back to our big earth data platform episode where we actually go over several of those platforms that are available to the public universities and companies uh, to do some of that analysis. Yeah, I guess the final thing I, I'll say before we close today is, you know, we're going to, I think, dive into this a little bit in a, a couple of future episodes, but sensing technology is needed. You know, we've got some satellite technology that's out there, but we didn't really talk about, like, in the United States, we have a ton of hydrological sensors and, you know, water and river gauges to measure those kind of uh, hydrological flows, for instance. Though those kind of data are not available in every country, you know, obviously third world countries, developing countries don't have that. And that's really needed to, to measure, you know, the water in, the water out, flooding and that sort of thing. Right. So anyway, it's been a, it's been a great triple point podcast. Yeah, it's been great. So if anybody has feedback for us, uh, you can drop us an email at triple point podcast at 81 degrees.com. That's triple point podcast at 81 degrees.com or hit us up on one of our social medias uh, we're on linkedin i'm on twitter yeah well we hope you enjoyed today's triple point podcast if you liked it subscribe to our newsletter at triplepointpodcast.com give us a shout and a five-star rating on your favorite podcast station and tell your friends about it or you can email us at triplepointpodcast at the number 81 degrees.com until next time have a great week